Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day with another podcast encounter from the ninth annual Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna last November. With me is Joan Cool, who's founder of an organization called Why Millennials Matter. Why do they matter? It's quite a good question. Why do you need an organization that says they matter? What's going on here? <laughs> well, the numbers speak for themselves. Millennials are now the largest living generation. With Millennials are people born since 2000, are they? No, 1980 to 2000. So they're anywhere from age 17 to 37 right now. I think that the most defining characteristic about this generation, obviously, is them you know, becoming in the, the digital natives. Um, that's what people are most familiar with as well. But not only are they the largest generation right now living, they're also going to dominate the workforce, which means they're dominating as consumers too. That's why businesses need to understand why they matter and cultivate them as, as their talent and as, as their best customers. But that's perfectly obvious that they matter <laughs> and that they're ever yeah. so important, isn't it? You'd think so, but it's not happening in a lot of companies. Our organization, so we do research training and consulting a lot of times in the health and wealth industries. And for example, the pharmaceutical industry, you see around 12 to 13% millennials. And these are global organizations that have affiliates in all of you know major cities around the world, yet their workforce is a, a bit grayer than that. And so I think the challenge is going to be succession management and really thinking about what are you going to have like this surge of hiring and then next couple years, is that truly going to be, you know, acquiring the best talent, the right talent that's going to be challenge you and help you innovate? So that's why I think companies need to start thinking about millennials right now and seeing how that they make a difference in their workforce. How do you operate? What do you do? Do you campaign? Do you go into companies? Do you advise? What do you do? I have five team members, and, and we're based in New York City. And so first, we're constantly doing research, because I think that informs the ideas that we have, that we give to different companies. It helps us stay in the conversation, whether it's with students on college campuses. We started off with studies with Barnes Noble College. They manage the bookstore at 725 college campuses. So that was 5 million students to figure out what their career mindset was, um, then did research with Cosmopolitan Magazine, because it's actually the number one magazine for millennials around the world, and kind of traveled around the world talking to them about them as consumers. The last couple years, a lot of the, the company research, the research is sponsored by companies. My most recent study was sponsored by EY, Ernst & Young, American Express, Moody's, S&P Global, Novo Nordisk, and that's been now published in our book, Misunderstood Millennial Talent. So it really just talks about their values and motivators and what it takes for them to be successful. This kind of matters to established organizations because these people, you call them digital natives, have a gut feeling for using digital, using social networks that the people who run conventional companies don't. When you think about them as digital natives, it doesn't mean that they can take your, com- take your computer apart and put it back together. It just means that they grew up and this was normal. They were learning online. They were socializing online. So they definitely think and process information differently. But what I think we all need to – what is disrupting businesses and media even is that they trust and remember – information that's user-generated content versus traditional sources. So they're looking for this very authentic, transparent voice. They're looking for it in leadership at work and their bosses. They're looking at it in the news that they read each day and you know how they digest it. So I think that's really the difference. It's how they receive information that they trust and how they ultimately communicate. 
They think differently, do they? I, I think that they problem solve a lot differently. I mean, think about how they crowdsource an answer. So they're not in this whole hierarchy of, you know, waiting for the, the sources that be that have more power and influence to tell them yes, no, go. They crowdsource to their friends and figure out, you know, is this an idea? Let's try it. I went to Finland once many years ago, and we were talking about uh, mobile phones, Finland being a very early adopter. From a sort of philosophical point of view, and the man I was talking to said, um, have you seen how young people use their mobile phones to make an appointment? They don't say, I'll meet you at a particular place. Mm -hmm. They say, I'm moving towards so-and-so, where are you? And then there's a kind of convergence, and the Finnish take on that was that um, we're herding animals like reindeer, and we herd, we move... That's the natural way of moving, and it's been denied us until now because we didn't have the mobile phone. Mm -hmm. And I found that an insight into a completely different way of doing things from the way I would do something. I would make an appointment. They travel like that as well. So I think what's been incredibly interesting is their travel habits. They're super savvy spenders. You know, on a hundred U.S. dollars, they can probably fly around to five different countries. Airbnb, they're sharing everything. They're staying with people they barely know, which then I always worry about the safety aspect of it. But I think that they have such deep networks that they're always somehow going through and connecting with somebody that can validate or make this person credible to them. So I think that that's just an extraordinary thing to, to look at it how desperate they are to experience the world. And I think decades ago, your best friend was your neighbor or the person that was in the playground next door to you. Now you could have a best friend that's in a part of the world that you may never travel to, but you're connected online. You've talked about companies that don't have their proper share of millennial employees, but do millennials really want to work for companies like that? Well, I want to help change that. Because I spent 13 years in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I started off my career at one of the, the, the largest global pharmaceutical companies, Eli Lilly and Company, and I had an extraordinary experience. And I think that I had great bosses and great leadership. And I think that there's so much that a big company, a traditional company can offer, right, that millennials want. They want that financial security. They want the resources of having people that they can respect, those meaningful mentors and sponsors, um, the ability to take on jobs and different functions and, and move around the world, right? But what they want is an inspiring culture. They want accessible leadership. And that's what is, uh, I think, the gap right now. So the, the traditional companies could offer so much more, but they have to change the style of how they develop talent, how they develop ideas, and, and make leadership accessible to even somebody that's an intern. Bring sex into this. Women. Mm -hmm. An imbalance of women still in business, particularly at the top. Mm -hmm. People have been going on about this forever, and it's still a fact. And millennial women will be no exception to this because they're still banging their heads on this glass ceiling thing, aren't they? Yeah. The new research is showing that a lot of people thought that women were leaving the workforce for motherhood, but actually it's because there's no flexibility and it's because of the policies. So if you think about employee engagement, so ultimately, you know, you want women to be engaged. It'll ultimately inspire them to want to advance. Well, there's three factors there. One is the culture of the company. And the culture is a rear view mirror of the leadership behavior. So if the leadership archetype is white and male and older, you know, their unconscious bias 
tends to influence the culture. And then ultimately the third part is systems. You know, talent management systems reward and recognize whatever that archetype is. So I think that what it's going to take is for leaders to really be intentional about setting goals. And there's plenty of talented women and minorities in these companies. You need to intentionally sponsor them. And if not, I think that there's a whole new wave, obviously, we know of, of startups, of women-owned businesses. Some of the new businesses, I feel like, that have launched in the last couple years really walk the walk in terms of inclusive culture. And obviously, sometimes it's easier to change a culture of 40 people versus 40,000 people. But I say keep a watch on Eli Lilly and company. I really believe in their CEO, Dave Ricks, and he signed with 150 other CEOs the diversity pledge. Beyond gender, it's about race as well. And I think that they really are going to to make some strides. I have two daughters, so that's what I hope for the future. So that's how you fit why millennials matter into the theme of this forum, inclusive prosperity. Yeah, absolutely. Inclusive leaders leverage the diverse perspective and encourage a speak-up culture. And millennials are the most diverse generation. Almost half identify with a race that's non-white. And they're more tolerant. They are a lot higher levels of perceived comfort. So I think they want a world that's inclusive. They're going to lead in that way. And that's what I think is ultimately going to ha- allow um, this growth and prosperity. I think you also think that the millennial thing is interesting and gets you sponsors and research jobs and that kind of thing. <laughs> but it's about transforming companies. It's about building better companies for everybody to work in, isn't it? Right. It's all generations. And I do think that the things that millennials want, everybody wants, traditionalists, baby boomers, you want to like the people you work with. You want to feel like you belong. You want to be inspired. You want to do good work. And everybody wants return on their investment. Everybody wants the company to be profitable, make a difference in the society and the communities you live in. And so I think that that I just support and amplify and give a voice to millennials because you may think that there's this buzz of them all the time in, in, in the media, but I'm working inside some of the biggest organizations, and they don't have um, sometimes that platform to share their new ideas, and I try to advocate for that. And they don't think we don't understand this new world. We need people who do. I mean, that would be a very strategic way of thinking about employing more people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that this is just not a nice thing to do. I think it's a must-have thing to do in terms of increasing representation of women, of different races, of you know different generations. Again, it just gets people with a totally different perspective, I think, challenging the status quo. But are older people hanging on? Are they blocking the, the route to the top? Do we need quotas, in other words, like the Norwegians have... And other countries now have quotas for directors on the boards of companies to improve the representation of women on company boards. Do we need something as deliberate as that? Difficult to deal with millennials if it's an age group thing. I think that we need to do something even more different. I don't think we should lose that legacy of knowledge to you know, to gain the, the younger, newer perspective or diverse perspective. How do we make it all work together? So how do we – I've seen companies that have the post-retirement opportunity where those that worked in that industry can come in and give their expertise a certain number of days of the week. That would be incredible for mentorship, partnering them up with people at different levels of the organization. Same with boards. Decisions cannot be made in you know, 12 people that all look the same behind closed doors. We need to, I think, allow different people from the company to come in more often. And and so I think that there's a middle ground there. You can't just reject the past to accept the future. I think we have to figure out a bridge in between. 
Because there are a lot of pressures on a company that wants to be inclusive. You're saying employ more millennials from the other end of the age spectrum. People Mm -hmm. are saying don't fire people or don't retire people because they reach a certain age. So let them go on and on working. This is a... The employment world is getting complicated. It's so it's so much more than that. It's it's about making people really connect and share their experiences while they're within the organization. So I think still what happens is there's this rejection of everybody thinks that millennials don't want to do things the new way. They want to disrupt everything. They don't care about what made the company successful. That's what I always hear in research from Gen X and baby boomers. And baby boomers they're really suspicious of these new people, are they? Yeah, and I, I think. That I think a lot of that comes from everybody's so busy. We all work these extreme jobs where we're traveling, we have heavy workload, working seven days a week, and that none of us feel like we have the time to really spend time getting to know the people that we work with. Or we feel older generations have expressed that they feel a little bit less at ease sharing personal things about them. Well, millennials don't need to know what every detail about your personal life. Just give them, I think everybody just wants to know a little bit something that tells me who you are. What do you love to do outside of work? Somebody mentioned yesterday that there was a poster that all the greatest ideas that come about for executives are when they're swimming or hiking or with their family or at an opera, not why they're in the confines of their office. I mean, that tells you people just need to be kind of out in the world. You want everybody to have some more time to be well, and then I think that they'll produce their best. Well, the management guru, Tom Peters, who's now quite old and has been a keen proponent of women in business for decades now, always used to say that uh, what was extraordinary to him about the uh, conventional business was the way people who were enormously creative in their their private lives, Mm. running football teams and all sorts of things, were asked to hang all that expertise up on a sort of hat peg when they came in the door to do a particular defined job in their organization. And I suspect that hasn't changed very much over the, the last few decades. Well, I think that definitely there's a pressure to conform. That's what's part of the the research findings about what's holding women back. There's the imposter syndrome that women feel like they have to, um, if there's a job out there and there's 10 qualifications on it, uh, women feel like they have to have nine out of those 10 qualifications before they even apply, whereas men, two they apply. So there's things like that, you know, the imposter syndrome, I have to do the job before I, you know, can earn the opportunity to apply for the job versus men are judged on their potential. So I think there's that. I think that there, that pressure to conform is where bias comes in. There's an archetype at most companies of what they think leadership is. Is it, is it presence? Is it, is it aggressive? Is it loud? Is it bold? And everybody thinks the only way to succeed is to look and act like that versus understanding that you can be all sorts of different ways and, and still drive results. There's another archetype, and that's about the job, that the job is about being there, um, to putting in the hours, that sort of, you talked about the enormous pressures on people yeah. in jobs. Maybe a clever millennial could come along and reorganize work so that it doesn't have those sort of blockish uh, uh, characteristics. Yeah, why are we still, you know, handcuffed to nine to five and feeling like they call BIS butts in seats? Um, that you know, millennials do value results over tenure. So I think that flexibility is is still a struggle in a lot of organizations. Yet it's a top three priority for women and millennials. And flexibility isn't working at home. It could be um, the type of the time of day that you work. It could be where you work, location. It could be how 
you work with technology. There's so many dimensions of that that companies and leaders could invest in to better talk to their people. What do you need? And this is also why everyone's scared to ask their people, what do you want? Because they think they're going to say more money and a bigger title and that the leader can't give it to them. You have to keep asking more and more and more because those are just the easiest responses. So if I ask you, but what else is important to you? Let me get to know you. What else motivates you? Oh, maybe you really are dying to get your master's. And maybe if that's where I offer some support and growth, give you the time off to take classes at night or sponsor it in some way. There's always something that we can uncover about one another if, if, if they're committed to knowing their people. It's called Why Millennials Matter, your organization. It could be called kind of why people matter, couldn't it? True. Absolutely. I think that that is the essence of everything, is really respect for all people. Don Cool, founder of Why Millennials Matter, thank you very much. This is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day. Another podcast coming up soon.